So this topic, the moral argument for God, the problem of evil, is a considerable topic out there. Now, how many of us have had tragedies in our lives? And I'm sure every one of our hands ought to go up at this point. And honestly, how many of us have had issues with reconciling this? How many of us have had issues where something bad happens in our lives and our, our default position is to blame God or to question God? I mean, if we're being honest, this is our sinful nature. How much more so from the unbelievers who don't know who God is? This topic is a huge topic. And so as we walk through this, there's a couple of subtopics in this. We want to talk about the, abs- the origin of absolute morality, what Christianity's greatest challenge is, this problem of evil. Now, it's not really a problem, but it's called the problem. We're going to talk about how it's not a problem in the end. How do we define evil? There's a lot of ways to define it. My biggest way is this, is uh, cats. <laughs> Sorry if you're a cat lover. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, when, when, the, when the pair of felines came off the ark, they were not little house cats. They were like the big, ferocious tigers or lions or something of that nature. This is, this is our clue that we know a lot of bad genetic mutations occur in this world. So, sorry. They're, they're the equivalent of poodles to dogs and chihuahuas. But, so, why does God allow evil to continue? I mean, think about this. If God is so good, why does evil continue in this world? How does God, or how do, how do we respond to the believer? What about the believer who asks us the question, why did God do this to me? This happens a lot, especially in bad churches when their theology isn't right. We're going to find that if you don't believe in a literal six-day creation about 6,000 years ago, you actually can't have a correct answer for the problem of evil. Just another doctrine that hinges on a proper creation account. How do we respond to the unbeliever? Because this is the biggest question that's out there from the unbelievers. And so the challenge is often stated like this. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Now, all of a sudden, we should have our alerts going off, right? Because there's an assumption in this good people. And we know from Romans 3, no one is good, no, not one. But it's a question that gets asked. How about how can a good God allow so much evil to happen? Or maybe it's stated something like this. Why does God allow children to get cancer? Why did he allow my parents to die at an early age? These are all very real questions and challenges that people have. 2009 survey question. If you could ask God only one question and knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? What was the most common response in this survey? Why is there pain and suffering in the world? It doesn't matter what ministry you are part of in in, in the country today. It could be creation ministries, end times ministries, churches. The number one question asked of ministries today regardless of whatever that ministry teaches on, is this question. We need to know how to answer this, don't we? This is big, and it's on a lot of people's minds, whether they're willing to admit it or not. 
So this problem of evil said by, said by Victor Stenger said this, the problem of evil remains the most powerful argument against God. Of course, he's an atheist, an author. This problem for the fancy term, those of you who like that out there, it's called theodicy. And this word theodicy, it's a branch of theology. We break it up into the two Greek roots, theos and dikaio. It's a defense of God's righteousness in light of the reality that evil exists in this world today, in the universe that he created. This is the, pro- this is the so-called problem. We've got other guys like Bertrand Russell, Nobel Prize winner, very acclaimed atheist, said, no one can sit at the bedside of a dying child and still believe in God. We're going to revisit this, this quote later this morning and talk about how we would answer a guy like Bertrand Russell. Guys like PhDs think they're really, really intelligent when they make statements like this. It's actually really foolish, even from an unbeliever's perspective. So the common answer from Christians is what? The secret things belong to the Lord God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, right? That's like kind of the catch-all verse, right? Or what about, for who has known the mind of the Lord? But are these really adequate answers to give? Not at all. We have real answers we can give. And this is what we need to do. So we're going to talk about the six biblical facts for the Christian and the four-part solution. Here's our starting points. Number one, God exists. His word is true. Right? The biblical worldview starts with this. This is, this is by which we stand when we are out there, out in this lost and dying world, evangelizing, using our apologetics, is we stand on God's word. The moment we get off of God's word, what have we done? We've entered enemy territory. We've gotten off of our foundations. Everything we do and we say must be filtered through this biblical worldview. Number two, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over his entire creation. As R.C. Sproul has said when he was alive, there's not a single maverick molecule in this entire universe. When he created the stars, they went immediately to their spots without complaint. Unlike the rest of us. (laughs) God ordains all things that come to pass. This is a big one here. Evil exists in the world. God ordains all things that come to pass. We have to reconcile this. Because evil does exist in the world. And yet we also know that God ordains everything and that in everything that's ordained is to the glory of God. These are major points, right, that we have to work through to understand this problem right. And so let's work through this solution here. If God exists, why is there so much evil in the world? Number one, we're going to talk about the problem of evil. Number two, what is evil? And number three, did God create evil? And then ultimately, is God to blame? So number one, the problem of evil. James Edwin, THD, PhD, education doctorate, very smart guy, obviously, says the problem of evil is one of the most crucial protests raised by unbelievers against the fact of God. He's absolutely right. He said this early in his his career, probably 60 to 70 years ago. Still the biggest problem today that we have to address. Number two, how do we define good and evil? Well, 
I can promise you this. If you ask the average person on the street, for those of you who do a lot of evangelism in here, you ask the average person if they're going to heaven, they will say yes. And then when you ask them why, they will say, because I'm a pretty good person. Or I do all kinds of good things. Like I walk in ladies across the streets and I donate money, I donate time, and I love people. And I mentioned that I donate lots of money. And, and before you know it, all they are is, a, is they turn down the, this water faucet of all the good works that they do. Right? This is, this is our perception of good. And why? Because we tend to believe as humans in our sinful flesh that we are better than that person who's worse than us. And therefore, we must be pretty good. But is that the biblical definition of good? No. What is the biblical definition of good? God. God himself is the definition of good. His righteousness. And so everything that we understand in this problem of good and evil must be compared to the goodness of God. Okay? We're going to walk through that. Let's talk about another concept here, hot and cold. Now, today's a little bit warmer outside, but a week ago when you walked outside, what would you say? Like the Christmas song, baby, it's cold outside, right? Is that actually a correct statement for us to make? See, the temperature of an object is just the measure of the heat energy that it contains. Which means then that if I walk outside and stick my hand out, or if I take my finger and put it on a popsicle, my finger feels cold. But is my finger actually cold, or is it that I've, I've, I've felt a loss of heat, so a transfer of heat from my finger to the popsicle? So because of the fact that our finger is warmer, Heat wants to transfer. Heat transfers from our finger to the popsicle, and now our finger feels cold. And so what is evil? Well, evil is very much like this idea of hot and cold. Evil is not a created entity. It doesn't exist as a created entity. It's not the presence of something material. Instead, evil is the absence of God's goodness. That's a proper definition of evil. So if we want to, similar to going outside, if it's 10 degrees outside, it's really cold out there because we have a real loss of heat. You know, the more evil deeds you do, technically the more evil you have because you're that, farther, that much farther away from God's righteousness, in a sense. But the bottom line, bottom line is, is that evil is just the idea of being not good. Absence of God's goodness in any way is evil. And so we can also define it this way, that which is contrary to the revealed will of God. God's revealed will, perfectly good. Anything absent of that? Not so good. Evil. So then that brings up the next question. Did God actually create evil? Well, we just talked about this. It's not a created being anyway, or not a created entity. So, how do we work through this? Well, first of all, God is the creator of all things. We do see that. And that God, when he looked over his creation, Genesis 131, his creation was perfect. Good, right? Very good or perfect. It's seemingly perfect is, is even a better translation of that. And then what happens in Genesis 2? So Genesis 2 is just a, a deeper look into day 6 of the Genesis 1 account of creation. 
And so in Genesis 2, we see that God gave Adam the freedom to choose to disobey. And he did this in one rule. Genesis 2, he, he says, Do not eat from the tree knowledge of good and evil, for when they eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? And what happens? They disobeyed God, and through this one act, death and evil entered into the creation. Absence of God's goodness, death, disease, suffering, famine, thorns and thistles, all that bad stuff enters into the creation. Remember one thing, death is an enemy, and that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we have to understand this issue of God's original creation was for the idea of everlasting life. Even though he knew in his foreordained plan it was not going to be that way, it was going to fall, he ordained it to fall, but yet in the original creation, it was still perfect with the idea of everlasting life. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, Disease entered the world, death entered the world, evil entered into the world. Death is not a good thing. Death is part of this evil concept. And so going further now and understanding what happened here in the, in the garden is that because of original sin, all people since Adam, except the God-man Jesus, are born with a sin nature, the natural inclination to sin. It's every one of us. And now, a lot of Christians will tell you, well, I, I don't believe I have a natural inclination. And I, I believe that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much still good. To which, I would say this. Let's say you're driving down the freeway at 70 miles an hour, and somebody cuts you off. Is the first thing out of your mouth, oh, bless their heart, they must be in a, in a rush. No. You know that's not the case, Right? That's not our first instinct of what we think. It just goes to show the evilness down to our core. And so we have to recognize who we are, sinful creatures who sin, even though God is good. John MacArthur, my favorite preacher out there, has a sermon called The Origin Evil. And he says that evil became a reality only when creatures chose to disobey. Evil came into existence initially, then in the fall of angels, and then next in the fall of Adam and Eve. So evil, again, entered into the world as a concept the moment Adam and Eve sinned. And so now then comes the next question. Is God to blame for evil? Well, he is the cause of all things, isn't he? God is sovereign over everything. But yet, is he to blame? Well, first, I think we've, we've got lots of historical accounts in the Bible to show that God does not ordain evil for evil purposes. And one of those great historical accounts is Joseph being sold into slavery. Was it an evil act for Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery? Absolutely. And yet, what do we find out many, many years later? And what did Joseph's brothers find out many, many years later? What God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. They carried out the evilness, wickedness of their hearts, selling Joseph into slavery, and yet God ordained the entire thing, meant it for good. So God ordains all things for his glory. So, number one, is God blamed evil? God is sovereign, God decrees all things. God decrees evil and bad things to happen. 
But I guess here's the question. If God is the ultimate cause, is he also the chargeable cause? Because we've established now that God ordains all things that come to pass. He even ordained Joseph's brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. We all admitted it was an evil act on Joseph's on the on, on side of Joseph's brothers. So was God to blame for this? Is God what we call the ultimate cause and the chargeable cause? So let's go to the best example we can find. Jesus' death on the cross. Was this a terrible act of evil? I mean, Jesus was perfect, right? Jesus was good. Did Jesus deserve to go to the cross to die? No, right? Didn't deserve it at all. And yet, what do we know about this? So, in Jesus' death on the cross, what is the ultimate cause? Who planned for Jesus to go to the cross? God did. You can read this in Acts 2. God predestined all the events related to Jesus dying on the cross. God was the ultimate cause of Christ going to the cross. Then we have what's called a proximate cause, which is that the Jews incited the Romans to actually crucify Jesus. And then we have something called the efficient clause, where, or cause, where the Romans are the ones who physically did the act, physically put Jesus up on the cross. So we have God, who preordained this, carried out by the Romans and the Jews. But God is not the chargeable party for evil. See, here's the reality. The Romans and the Jews did exactly what they were going to do out of the wickedness of their own hearts. Even though God ordained the entire process. It's an important doctrine called the doctrine of superintending. You'll find that this is throughout Scripture. Pastor Andrew Rappaport writes about it in his, writes about it in his book in the back on, on, our, on systematic theology, What Do We Believe? And it goes something like this. Who wrote the book of Romans? God. Who else wrote the book of Romans? Oh, we have a problem, don't we? Right? On the surface, it sounds like this is an irreconcilable issue. And yet we know somehow that while Paul penned it, he penned it, every, he penned it in his own language, in his own intelligence, with all of his backgrounds, he penned it, and yet every jot and tittle was penned under the inspiration of whom? God. Right? I talked about this last week. So we see the doctrine of superintending there as well. No different than what we see in the problem of evil. God superintends it, and yet evil man and the evilness of desires carry out the evil acts that occur in this world. And so in this, God is not the chargeable party. It's wicked man. God ordains evil for his glory and for good purposes. Just like Joseph, just like his death on the cross, just like numerous other examples we see in Scripture. So, okay, we answer this question. Clifford McManus says, it says this, No discussion on apologetics is complete without addressing the problem of evil. 
Opponents have long held that the problem of evil is the most impregnable charge confronting Christianity. It is the critic's ultimate trump card against the Bible's credibility. James Anderson says, the greatest challenge for the Christian worldview is undoubtedly the problem of evil. So they, they understand this issue. So far, we've answered where evil comes from and that God is not the chargeable party. It's evil, it's evil men with the evilness of their hearts. But we still have some more things to tackle in this issue. Is Can God and evil coexist? So why does God allow, God allow these bad things to happen? Well, we've kind of answered this, right? That God allows these bad things to happen for his goodness, for his good purposes, for his good pleasure, for his glory. But we get asked these questions by believers. And they still have these questions for us. So how do we answer them? Well, first of all, let's go back to Genesis. 131, God called his creation very good. Genesis 2, we said earlier, Adam was given one command before Eve was even created. One command, do not eat from tree knowledge good and evil, for when they eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 3, we see what happens. Adam eats of the fruit. Their eyes are opened. They're naked. They're ashamed. Immediate spiritual death. All the way down to Genesis 3.19, the promise of future physical death. The, the death process had started the moment their eyes were opened. And so here's a really important concept for the believers, is that when we understand Genesis 1 through 3 properly, who is the cause of evil in this world? Is it God? It's Adam. And by proxy, whom? Us. And that same sinful nature. We're the ones responsible for the evil in the world. See, when people want to pin God for evil, he's not the responsible party. He's not the chargeable party. We are. We're the ones it's blamed on. And so when we talk to a believer, we have to have a specific response. I'll tell you a quick little story. An old church we used to 10 years ago, I was teaching on the topic of creation versus evolution. There were elders actually in the church. It's a mega church that was teaching evolution to the school children. Completely horrific. Yeah, I see some eyeballs lighting up right now. And why this is significant is this, because after we had left the church, I was teaching there for about a year and a half, and, and I felt to just leave peaceably and, and leave the church as they were not standing on a biblical creation, they were standing on really anything goes type of creation. Six to eight months after we left the church, one of our patients, good friends of ours, a family who still attended our old church, their 21-year-old son died in a tragic car accident. He had just turned 21, sadly was out drinking with his friends, and the driver of this car hit a tree. He had a seatbelt on, he survived barely a scratch. Their friend in the passenger seat had a seatbelt on, still somehow hit the windshield, was paralyzed. Our patient's son, who was sitting in the back seat without a seatbelt on, went through the seats, through the windshield, hit the same tree that the car hit, died instantly. An unbelievably tragic accident. 
I'll never forget going to this funeral. He's a, they're a prominent family in Middleburg Heights. And when we stood in line for hour and a half, almost an hour and 45 minutes in the receiving line at the church before we got up to the family. And as soon as we got up there, the father, who knows I, I was doing a lot of teaching at the time, gave me a big hug and said, I don't know why God did this to me in his tears. How heartbreaking. And the whole problem with this is that if we understand God's creation right, that God created perfectly, that Adam and Eve are who brought sin into the world, death is only the result of Adam's sin about 6,000 years ago. See, in a correct biblical creation account, we have Adam and Eve were made about 6,000 years ago. We can count up our genealogies in Genesis 5, Genesis 11, other areas of the Bible, historical accounts. Adam and Eve were about 6,000 years ago. There's no getting around that. They were made on the sixth day of creation. No getting around that. And that death is only the result of sin. Romans 5 says this. Romans 3 and Romans 6 says this. 1 Corinthians 15. The bottom line is death is a result of sin. And so if death is a result of Adam's sin about 6,000 years ago, death is blamed on human sin. It is a result of Adam and Eve sinning by proxy us. But if we view creation in any other way, we have to take death and put it before Adam and Eve 6,000 years ago. That means the fossil record we have out there is just a record of God doing death and death and death and death and death for billions of years to bring out everything we see today. That is not what the Bible teaches. See, if God used death all of those years on purpose for evolutionary purposes to bring us about, it wouldn't quite have the sting, would it? Maybe death wouldn't be that last enemy to be destroyed that God says it is in 1 Corinthians 15 if he just so happened to use it for billions of years. Do you see the problem? See, when we have, a, when we have churches that... that believe God just used death all this time, it changes how we would view death and view evil and view other things. And that we would want to pin it on God as if he's to blame versus understanding that God's original creation wasn't meant to be that way. And the new heavens and new earth, guess what? There will be no death. There will be no more suffering and tears and cancer and everything else. This is a major issue that we have to work through. And so when the believer asks this question, why did this bad thing happen to me? It's often with the wrong view in mind of who we are. Are we primarily good or are we primarily evil? See, Vody Bauckham has a great sermon on this. And here's a little clip of it from, it's called The Supremacy of Christ at the Desiring God 2006 National Conference. And he says this, Look at, me in, look at me in my eyes and ask this. How on earth can a holy and righteous God know what I did and thought and said yesterday and not kill me in my sleep last night? Ask it that way and we can talk. But until you ask it that way, you do not understand the issue. Until you ask the question that way, you believe the problem is out there somewhere. Until you ask the question that way, you believe that there are some individuals who, in and of themselves, deserve something other than the almighty wrath of God. 
When you ask the question that way, when you say, why is it that we are here today? Why is he not consumed and devoured each and every one of us? Why, oh why, God, does your judgment and your wrath tarry? Then you truly understand the issue. Vody made something really, really plain to that audience that day, something that we should all understand. Every breath we take today is God's grace and mercy in our lives. Adam and Eve, the moment they sinned, could God have snuffed them out right then and there? Yeah. They deserved it. Yet it was His grace and mercy that allowed them to live another day, and then another day, and another day for many years. And Adam had a lot of them, over 900. This is how we have to properly view who we are. R.C. Sproul's book, Holiness of God, again, a top five book. I mentioned it last week. There's another part I'll mention this week in his book. He talks about a man who served 30 year, almost 30 years in prison for a rape case, to which he always maintained his innocence. And then finally, when DNA evidence came out, he had the DNA evidence that he got a retrial. DNA evidence was checked, and guess what? He was not guilty. He was telling the truth all these years. And so 30 years later, he gets out of prison. Now, in one sense, horizontally, human to human, was he wronged? Absolutely. Right? And if he went and won a huge lawsuit, he was wronged on a horizontal level. But what about a vertical level? He was still breathing God's air. He was still eating God's food. See, R.C. Sproul pointed out the fact that he deserved death from, an, from the very beginning, from conception. This is, again, how we have to view who we are and when we talk to the believer. So let's go on a little bit further. The case study of the blind man, John 9, verses 1 through 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. So the implication here, the apostles thought this guy was born blind. Why? Because of sin, his own or his parents. Now, in a sense, they were right because it went back to Adam's sin, right? But, but that wasn't what they were asking. They're asking about this immediate sin. Who did it? What did Jesus respond? What was his response? He said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What? Do you think that was the answer the apostles were anticipating? Not at all. That the works of God might be displayed in him. Of course, they saw an immediate work in, in his blind eyes being able to see. Let's go to another one, the Tower of Siloam. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Because that Tower of Siloam fell and killed a number of them. Were they worse sinners? How did Jesus respond? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. His response was to repent. Was that the response you think the apostles were looking for? I don't think so. 
What was Jesus getting at here? Bad things happen in this world as a result of Adam's sin. You don't know when your next breath is going to be, so you better repent. That was the whole point. Talked about the case study of Joseph already. So now let's talk about the unbeliever, right? So from a believer's perspective, we have to make sure their mind is right, right? They understand who they are, sinners. They deserve nothing but God's wrath. So everything good that happens in our lives is is God's grace and mercy in our lives and his goodness in our lives. What about the unbeliever now? Well, this is the way they like to pose their problems. If God is omnipotent, all-powerful, he'd be able to prevent all the evil and suffering in the world. But because there's evil, he must not be omnipotent, therefore he's not God. Or they might say if God is omniscient, if he's all-knowing, he would know about all the evil and suffering in the world and would know how to eliminate or prevent it. If not, then he must not be omniscient and therefore not God. Same thing about if he's perfectly good. And so they come to a conclusion, evil and suffering... Per- exists. Therefore, God is either not omnipotent, not omniscient, or not perfectly good. Therefore, he must not be God. And they look at us like we have this logical inconsistency in our worldview. So how do we respond to the unbeliever now? Well, first, understand what they're asking us. Understand what they're saying. Number two, let's challenge them for why they believe that their statement is true. And number three, let's provide that solution that we're called to provide. So how do we go on this offensive here? Let's understand this challenge first and foremost, that it's an argument about morality. Every unbeliever I talk to has a sense of right from wrong. And we learned last week, where do they get that from? God writing on their heart, Romans 2. Everybody has a sense of right and wrong. The problem with the unbeliever, they don't know where it comes from. And that the unbeliever is inconsistent in their worldview because what do they like to do? They like to believe that good and that that good and evil exist or that, that right from wrong exists, except when it doesn't benefit them. And so for those of us who do a lot of evangelism, you will find that, that everybody wants to talk about what's wrong and right in the world, unless, of course, it applies to morality or religion. Then all of a sudden, nobody wants to talk about this anymore. We also have to understand that the fact that evil exists is not about the existence of God, but about his character. So they're attacking attacking his character trait in general. And so what is this idea of moral relativism? When they ask these questions about, about morals, they have this idea, again, of right from wrong, except when you apply it to them. When you ask them questions like, have you ever stolen? Have you ever lied? Have you ever lusted? How do you think God's going to view that? And all of a sudden, they don't have that moral compass anymore. It disappears. And so where does this moral, where, where does moral relativism come from? Well, first of all, it's a system where they look at nothing as better or worse than another. That's this pretend ethical system out there. It's denial of truth. So where do we see this as Christians today? Areas of homosexuality, transgenderism especially, Right? They ignore God's, God's words on all that. It's a widely held position today, this idea that, that morality can change or is, is amorphous, and that ultimately people want to do what's right in their own eyes. And so when we're talking to the unbeliever, 
we have to recognize while they have a moral compass, while they have an idea of right from wrong, they're going to pretend like they don't have one when we are challenging them on issues of themselves, whether it's morality or religion. And so how do we address this? Well, I like to point out to them, first, of, first and foremost, if God created us, he has the right to set the rules. And then I like to go through this little exercise with them. When they ask a question like, if God is so powerful and so good, why do bad things happen? I don't even want to answer the question. I want to go back a little bit to their presuppositions, and I want to say, hold on a second. What do you mean by good? Like, where is your absolute standard coming from when you say, why is why if good, God is so good and so powerful, do bad things happen? What is your absolute standard of good and evil? See, when they ask that question, they're begging of a certain absolute moral code, all while pretending that morality doesn't actually exist. Do we see that dichotomy here? This is the issue. Unfortunately, a lot of believers have the same dichotomy, which is why we walk through the believer side first. And so how do we respond to this? Well, I will tell you, without getting into a ton of detail on this, there's typically four responses that any one of the responses can be filtered into. Personal opinion, what benefits society, the laws of society, or feelings. And it goes something like this. When we press into them about morality and where an absolute moral code would come from, and we tell them that one must exist, and they all of a sudden are telling us one doesn't exist, we say, okay, where can we get an absolute moral code? Where are you defining good and evil from right now, Mr. Unbeliever? And they will say this. Well, the standard or moral code is based upon personal opinion. It's based on my opinion. That's almost always the first thing they say. To which we say, well then, how do we condemn that murderer or rapist? Because they thought it was good too. It was their personal opinion that it was good to murder or rape. Does that make it right? And then the unbeliever backs down. And then they say, well, the moral standard is based upon what benefits society. That's, that's, I mean, because rape is not good for society. Murder is not good for society. Oh, yeah, well, um, wasn't it the Germans who thought it was good for society to exterminate Nazis? I'm sorry, to exterminate Jews and exterminate Italians and Japanese and mentally retarded? I mean, wasn't that something that benefited society? Aren't there a lot of societies that say it benefits society? Oh, obviously you don't believe in that, do you? No. Okay, so Mr. Unbeliever, then how do you define absolute moral code? Well, maybe it's based on the laws of society instead, right? We're going to base it on the laws, to which we say, well, hold on a second. For it to be an absolute moral code, a moral code must be transcendental, right? A moral code must be good for all times, all places, all situations, that means for murder to be wrong, it must be wrong here in Cambodia, in Russia, from, its, from the time of the beginning of time all the way to any time in the future until Christ comes again, that murder must always be wrong. So if societies can just change the rules, change the laws, that doesn't make an absolute moral code, does it? Not to mention, I mean, were those Jim Crow laws good back in the day? I mean, those were the laws of society, weren't they? To which all of a sudden that doesn't work anymore. 
Then we go to possible response number four, that the standard or moral code must be what just makes me feel good. And it is almost always a default position in the end, to which we say the exact same thing. What about the murderer or rapist who says it just made him feel good? What I'm hoping to point out here is that any response they give you that is short of the God of the Bible, the creator God of the universe, any response short of that falls short of an absolute standard. And whatever answer they give you is typically going to fall in one of these four categories. Our job is to point out how it can't work that way. And that the reality is, is that they all fall short. There's no universal standard. In fact, you can also point out to them, no matter how many other reasons they can come up with, if we have this horizontal scale of measuring good and evil, of right from wrong, there's nothing ever absolute about it because we can always have different factions, we can all have different, different ideas and belief systems that come about in a horizontal way. The only way we can have absolute morality is when it comes from above and projected down onto us. It's the only way it can be transcendental, good for all times, all places, all peoples. And so therefore, when we talk to them, we point them back to the creator God of the Bible as the only one who can make rules in regards to right from wrong. And the thing is, is do we have to prove it to them? No. Why? Because it's written on their heart already. Their conscience testifies and bears witness to God. All we're doing is we're making it known to them, pointing it out to them. And so now we have Bertrand Russell who says, no one can sit at the bedside of a dying child and believe in God. How would we answer him? Maybe, why is it wrong that somebody's dying? Right? Because that's, that's built into his question, isn't it? Or, I mean, you believe in evolution, so, I mean, survival of the fittest, death is supposed to be a good thing. Like, why do you care? I mean, let's be honest. You want to get some, some atheists going to witness to him? Go on atheist um, Facebook pages and stuff, and the next time a mass shooting happens, ask him why it's wrong. Say it's, it's good according to your worldview. And see all the anger that comes forth, and then start witnessing to him. Because th this is the reality, right? They, they, have, they have this... In, they have this understanding of right from wrong built into them, written on their heart, and yet they pretend God doesn't exist, they suppress the truth about him and their sin, so they have to come up with some other method to believe good and evil exists without God. I know all the questions I would ask him today. We could ask other questions like, why doesn't God stop suicide? Why doesn't God stop rape? Why doesn't God stop all kinds of things, right? To Bertrand Russell. Well, here's our solution. God is all good. God is all powerful. Evil exists. So we've walked through this morning already. God ordains all things to come to pass. That includes evil things, but he's not blamed for it. He's not the chargeable cause. An absolute moral code does actually exist, and it comes from God, written all over our hearts. But we still have one last question is, why does God allow evil to exist? Because this is a question asked of believers and unbelievers alike. If he is so powerful, so good, why do these things continue to happen?
Why did he ordain evil to happen in his creation? Well, number one is that everything that happens is to the glory of God. Number two, in a perfect creation, only some of God's attributes would actually be seen. Here's the key. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit from eternity past. Some of their attributes, like love, could be seen between one another. Other attributes couldn't be seen at all, could they? His attributes of mercy and grace and justice would not be seen at all in there. Furthermore, what about a perfect creation? Let's say he creates a world now. He has people in it. If the world never fell through Adam and Eve, would his attributes of grace and mercy and justice have been known? No. And so here is the reality of it all. A fallen and redeemed creation would put all of God's attributes on full display. In that, for God's glory to be out there in full, he had to have a creation that fell. One of the people's favorite passages, if you are a Doctrines of Grace guy, and if you're not, become a God Doctrines of Grace guy, please. But uh, Romans 9 is often talked about as the chapter of election, isn't it? And, and we, those of us who understand this doctrine, love the doctrine, we point to Romans 9 very quickly. However, I'm going to point out to you that Romans 9, the primary purpose of it is not about election. You know how I know? Because God's word says this in verse 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? God's purpose of election was for his attributes to be shown in full. God's purpose for everything he does is for his attributes to be shown in full so that his glory is on full display. That's why we have evil in the world today. This is how we fully reconcile what is going on. But here's the thing. Why does God allow evil to continue? Because his, his glory has already been shown, hasn't it? I mean, from that perspective. Yet he's purposely delaying eliminating evil in order for those who are his elect to come to him, for his people to come to him. There's still more time for them to be gathered. God is long-suffering, according to 2 Peter 3. But just understand, will God do away with evil? Yeah. He is going to get rid of it. He's not because he's long-suffering. Waiting for those to come to repentance and faith in him. And so what is the solution for all this, right? We, we walk through a lot of theology, a lot of understanding, a lot of apologetic on this subject. What does this mean in the end? You know what? It means the gospel's the solution. It means when we talk to the unbeliever who can't reconcile this idea of a good God and evil, we can use an apologetic and show him or her how you can't even ask this question without begging for an absolute standard of morality. And that standard of morality is God. And by the way, 
that God you're going to face. The moment you die, Hebrews 9.27 says, every man's appointed wants to die and then judgment. You're going to face him immediately and have to give an accounting for everything you've ever done. That moral law that you know exists, that moral law written on your heart, you know you've done wrong. You know you've sinned against God. You know you've broken his law continuously in your lives. And you're going to face him, and you're going to have an accounting for everything you've done. And here's the reality is that all the evil you've done against him, you deserve just wrath. You deserve hell for eternity. He's eternal. You deserve hell for eternity because of your sin. But here's the good news is that God sent his son Jesus. Fully God, take on flesh, become fully human as well. Truly God, truly man, live the perfect life that you're not capable of. Not even that bad thought that comes across your mind every 30 seconds came across his mind once. Goes to the cross to die for his own sin? No. Went to die for the sins of those who repent and believe. And that through his death, burial, and resurrection, he literally paid the penalty in full that you owe to God. The Father's wrath, eternal wrath, was poured out on his own Son on your behalf if you repent and believe. This is the gospel message that we need to give. The person who is, who is upset about God, about morality, is because they're upset about God. They're suppressing truth about him, and they're using every excuse they can to put him out of their minds. And it's really easy to use a tragedy in our lives. And so our job is to lovingly and kindly walk them through this understanding. Walk them through Genesis 1 through 3. And most importantly, though, talk to them about their sin. Their sin is a front against God. Let's forget everything else right now. Let's just talk about your sin against God, who's holy, righteous, and just. That's the solution to this problem. And so... In conclusion, Adam is responsible for Adam for sin and death. Adam is the chargeable party, not God. And that humans, including the people you talk to, are evil by nature, not good. That unbeliever, all they're doing when they ask these questions is displaying they know an absolute standard of good and evil exists. Our job is to show them where it comes from and who it comes from and understanding that they can't account for it in any way other than Creator God. So on that, I know this is heavy. It's been dead silent for a while in here. <laughs> Please go back and listen to this if you need to get more. It, this is a, it's a heavy topic, but it's one that I promise when you understand well, it will change everything about how you talk to people because this is the number one objection we will face. I hear it all the time, and it, it's regardless of age, by the way. I hear it from young kids as much as I do the 80-year-olds. Not that that's old. <laughs> My book on the origin of kinds, I talked about it last week. It's in the back. Same with Pastor Andrew Rappaport's books, Systematic Theology and Witnessing the Cult. I know we sold out of some of the books. We've got more back here. And I want to plug one more time our five-day creation training course. We will go over this question and many others in very good detail over five days, plus give you practice to stand up and talk, and we coach you to be a better speaker.
and uh, an evangelist. And so that'll be August 1st through the 6th, 2022 at Ridgecrest Conference Center. Make sure you sign up soon because they are filling up fast. And on that, let's close in prayer. Lord, I just thank you for, again, gathering us together today. What a weighty topic to go through. <clears throat> Lord, I just pray that, uh, that you allow these words to and these concepts to really settle on our minds well and to, and to give us clarity of understanding of, of this issue and these questions that are asked of believers. They're legitimate questions, and they're asked all the time. And so I ask you give us the opportunities to speak with unbelievers and believers with these issues and give us the words to speak in regards to these. Lord, I just thank you for Madonna Bible Church and, and allowing them to be your servants in this area to different ministries as well as just to people in general in the public at the farmer's markets and other areas. I ask you to continue to empower everyone in here to go out and preach your word, preach your gospel, which is the power of you unto salvation. Just thank you for opening our eyes to who you are, opening our eyes to the gospel message, granting us repentance and faith so that we can go out and share that message to the others. Carry this message of reconciliation to a lost and dying world, being your ambassadors. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.